invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. And if it's been a little while since you've turned to Hosea, uh, it's towards the end of the Old Testament, just after Daniel, before Joel, Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is a book in the Bible that affords us plenty of opportunity to talk about your favorite subject, sin. We really can't go more than a page than talking about it, and it doesn't let us off the hook. It's a relentless dive into the reality of sin. In fact, it's not just the book of Hosea, but pretty much any page of the Bible that you turn to, you'll have to reckon with the reality of sin. Sin, on every page of the Bible, is taken seriously. You will find no sentence in the Bible that treats it as though it is trivial. But not only is sin not trivial, it's also not abstract. Sin is not to be hung out there as just this thing that you can't really grasp or get your minds around. It's not just this kind of nebulous idea that you don't have to reckon with in your own heart. Sin is very personal. Sin is always personal. When you sin, most likely you sin against somebody. It may be your wife, it may be your parents, maybe your husband, maybe your kids, it may be your coworker or your boss. You're always sinning against somebody. And if you can't pinpoint a direct person to, that you are sinning against, you can always connect it back to God. Sin is always personal. Sin is always against God. As someone has said, if, it's not, if sin is not against God, it's not sin. Sin is always against God. And we see in the book of Hosea that God takes it personally. Although God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, God makes it clear to us that when we sin, he experiences a personal response to our sin. He's not indifferent to it. You see the closeness that God experiences our sin against him in the book of Hosea as the whole book sets up this framework for us by which to understand the way that God sees sin. And he sees it as though it is an adulterous bride leaving her husband. So as we look at Hosea chapter 2, we keep this picture in mind that we've already laid out in chapter 1 about Hosea taking to himself a bride who is going to commit adultery against him, all to paint this picture for us of the way that God looks at our sin against him. He takes it seriously and he takes it personally. And so we're going to see in Hosea chapter 2 a couple of illustrations of sin for us to help us understand how personal it is. But we'll also see a display of God's mercy. And we'll see that God's mercy is better than any sinful path can offer us. So we'll see first that sin pursues God's gifts unlawfully and finds frustration. Let's read Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead. 
for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Our hearts, if you pay attention to them, just rage with desire. If you spend any length of time just pondering your own heart, you will find that your heart rages with desires. It wants all of the time. If you have any trouble seeing this in your own heart, just look at a child, namely an infant, and you will see a heart that just wants all the time. It wants to eat. It wants to sleep. It wants to be changed. It wants all day long. Your heart wants in a similar way. It wants all day long. You want peace. You want quiet. You want security. You want food. You want clothes. You want a house. You want a bike. You want a car. You want respect, admiration, friendship, acceptance, happiness, pleasure, warmth, cold, rain, sun, growth, more or less. You want, want, want all the time. And that all stems from your heart. John Calvin described the heart as an idol factory. It just produces these things that we worship all the time. We come up with these things that we want, we go after them, we idolize them, and we desire them with almost a breathless pace. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to want things. It's how we want things that's the problem. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why prayer is so important. We're to pray at all times, in all circumstances. And one of the reasons that prayer is so important is because it checks our desires against God and his plan for us. As we find our heart just wanting new things, more things, different things, better things, we bring those things before the Lord and we get that moment to evaluate whether this is something that the Lord would have for us. And we surrender our wills towards his. And prayer begs us to ask, can we bring this request before the Lord in a sincere manner? Can we truly ask in faith for the Lord to give us the thing that we desire? The very first prayer that the Lord teaches us is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And all other requests should come under that umbrella. Do we desire God's name to be hallowed above all things? Or is our desire in some way to build our own kingdom? And so prayer can settle our hearts and calm our desires. Now, Hosea chapter 2 is not really about prayer, but we find this woman here that God is speaking to, a woman who wants and wants and wants, and we find a similarity on her own hearts, that we want things. And like this woman, we want things detached from God and his goodness. 
We may want his gifts, but we don't want him. And so we'll take the things that he gives us, we detach them from God, and we go after them. And in that case, those things become idolatry. And in Hosea, he equates it to adultery. Like desiring sexual fulfillment in marriage and pursuing it by means of a lover who is not your spouse. That should sicken your stomach and sober us to the way in which God sees sin. He sees our hearts desiring something, and oftentimes it's something that he would promise us or give us in a lawful and righteous manner, but we want to grab it, detach it from God, and pursue it by other means. And so God now equates that for us to spiritual adultery. And he wants it to sicken our stomachs like physical adultery should sicken our stomachs. God sees his people Israel, as he's speaking to them about 700 B.C., going after the very gifts that he promises to give them by means of unlawful ways and tactics. And he calls that spiritual adultery and calls them to the carpet. And Hosea becomes this book that is not a G-rated book. It speaks to us in serious terms, not to say that it's inappropriate or crude, but it deals in a serious way with sin. It conveys the seriousness of idolatry, the seriousness of the desires of our hearts that are pursued by unlawful means. And God helps us to see how serious it is by equating the sin to the breaking of marriage vows. In the context of when God is speaking, God has been good to the people of Israel. He's taken care of them. He's provided for them. He's redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He's delivered them into a land to call their own. He's called them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He gave them laws to live by. He's made them to be a prosperous people, an abundant people, a people to enjoy the rains and the seasons and the growth of the ground. He's given them a notoriety among the nations by which if they follow the laws that God gives them, they will be recognized as wise among the people. God will provide the very things that Israel needs, rain and food and protection and housing, and he'll provide it abundantly. And God has done that. He's been good. He's taking care of them. But he doesn't always do it on their timing or in the ways that they would want. If you recall, as Israel is given the promised land, God promises it to them. And as Israel sends spies into the land, they see that it's full of big people. And they get scared. And even though God has promised them the land, given it to them, they don't like the way in which he's given it to them. Namely, it's already occupied with big people that they have to go obliterate. They don't like that. And they get worried. And they disobey God. And so we know, not just from Scripture, but also from experience, that God promises us things. And he calls us to trust him for what he promises us. And we find it hard to trust him. And so when we find it hard to trust him, we want to take things into our own hands and try to get the things that he promises us by the ways that we want to get it. This is illustrated by Abraham and Sarah. 
when God promises that Abraham would have an heir. And they wait for this heir. It doesn't come fast enough, and eventually Sarah offers to Abraham her maidservant to take as his wife and to produce a child. They go out of the lane of trust and promises. They go into the lane of taking things into their own hands, under their own control, and the result is disaster. The temptation is always there not to trust God. We find it inconvenient to trust Him. We find His ways to be inconvenient. We find He asks us to wait longer than we want to. And so we try to take matters into our own hand. We want, we try to get, and our heart rages with these desires, and like a flood, it just kind of sweeps us away. We abandon God and His ways. We cut the path that we want to go and try to get what we want. This is what Israel has been doing. And that's why God speaks so soberly to them in Hosea chapter 2. He takes up the speech of an offended husband whose wife has gone off and committed adultery. And in verse 2, he speaks to children saying, plead with your mother, plead. God, in a sense, isn't even directly speaking to the whole of the nation of Israel at this point. He's speaking to individuals. And he's calling to them to plead with the nation as a whole to turn back to the God, for they have left him. This is an interesting section because we've already read about how God called Hosea to take Gomer to be his wife. And we know that Gomer goes off into adultery. And so as Hosea 2 begins, we get this sense of who's speaking here. Is this God or is this Hosea? And the line is supposed to be blurry. You're supposed to wonder, is this a man speaking to his wife or is this God speaking to his nation? And it's right for us to be somewhat confused because God is speaking as a husband to a wife. And these are words in parts that Hosea could have spoken to Gomer. In some parts, they are not words that he would speak to her, and there's words that God would speak to his nation. But he starts out with this gut-wrenching statement, plead with your mother, plead He's calling the children to go to the adulterous mother and basically call her out for the adulteries that she's been committing. And the reason that this is happening is because the husband is so offended, he's on the brink of divorce, so much so that he states, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. He is so offended and so hurt by this that he sends the children to go and plead with the mother because the relationship of husband and wife has been so abruptly changed that it's as if they are not husband and wife any longer. And so the children are go and plead. If you put this in the context of Israel, it is as if some of the faithful people in Israel are called by God to go and plead with the whole of the nation to turn their attention to what they've been doing. And the call is for this adulterous wife 
to put away her adulteries. The end of verse 2 is fairly graphic. That she put away her whoring from her face. The word is actually a plural. It would be her whorings, her adulteries. It is an ongoing event. This is not a one-time event for her. It is a sinful habit. And this phrase, whoring from her face, what does that even mean? Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 30 describes the people of Israel this way. It says, You desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. The description there is of a prostitute and has dressed herself up as a prostitute to be known as such. And so what Israel has done is to basically take upon themselves the adornments that show that they don't even belong to Yahweh anymore. They live and they dress in such a way to show that they serve another god. They paint their face in a particular way. Maybe they take on tattoos or they do things to show that they do not belong to Yahweh. They belong to another God. Genesis 38, 15 speaks of that awful incident between Judah and Tamar who takes his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. And it says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. It indicates that prostitutes would dress a certain way to indicate what they were. And the point here is that Israel has gone so far afield from God's ways that they have dressed themselves up like a people that do not belong to God. They have identified with their sin. Their identity is in their sin. When you look at them, you know what they are. And they're not ashamed of it. To make the point even sharper, it's as if Hosea has seen his wife Gomer take on the dress of a prostitute and she has so utterly forsaken the role of wife that she doesn't even look the part anymore. That's how God sees his people. So destitute in their sin. And so God says, basically, if they continue this way, verse 3, if they continue and do not turn, he'll strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. That's the consequences if she does not move away from her sin. It's a graphic image again. And the image would be fulfilled when we find that the northern kingdom did not indeed repent. They doubled down on their sin and they're ultimately exiled And as they're led away exiled, they're left bereft of the land, they're stripped of their clothes, and they're marched away naked in utter humility and shame. And the land of Israel is left abandoned, and it's made to be a wilderness. It's no longer cultivated, and God will stop up the heavens so that rain won't come down and drought will ensue. Those are the consequences. And God even goes so far to say, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. It's to say that even the next generations will not receive the mercy of God. They too will continue in the path that their mother has walked. 
and they will experience the barrenness of a life without God. What drove Gomer and what drove Hosea's wife towards this end? Well, look at verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You notice there that word my. Again and again, my lovers, my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. You get this selfishness about this woman and about Israel as a nation. All of those things would have been things that God would provide for his people, food and drink, clothing in the form of wool and flax, and then luxuries like oil and drink. God would provide every last one of them, but this woman decides to go away from the source of provision and yet wants to keep the very gifts that would have been provided her and make them her own by her own means, namely by adultery. The way that this would have worked out in practice in Israel's history is they would have seen these other gods, namely Baal, and would have gone after these other gods, offer their worship to Baal in exchange for their worship. They would expect from Baal protection and provision, rains and fertility. You see this in the life of Ahaz. Ahaz was king And he was defeated by a nation north of him, Syria. When he was defeated by them, he thought, well, the God of Syria must be stronger than my God, and so I'm going to worship their God. And so he goes up and sees the way that the worship happens there and brings back the worship from there down to his nation and instills this worship of a fake God because he saw that God stronger than his God. And Ahaz stripped the temple of gold and silver and dedicated it to the God of Syria to worship him in exchange for the protection that the God of Syria would give to him. And I think that's such a great picture of what sin is, because we take the very things that ultimately God gives us and we manipulate them to use them to sin against him. When we take the body that God has given us, the hands he's given us, the tongues he's given us, and we manipulate those things to sin against him, we're using the very gifts that he gives us, reorchestrate them in order to sin against the very God who gave it to us in the first place. We can be tempted to do the same thing. We claim to follow Jesus. We say... Well, the Jesus of the Bible isn't giving me what I want, and so I'll create a Jesus in my own image right now, and he'll let me have what I want. He'll make me happy. He'll let me live in my sin. He'll let me live my life of love how I want to live it. And we create a Jesus that affirms us rather than preaches truth to us, and we end up worshiping a false God and taking the very gifts that God would give us in the first place and manipulating them to our own ends. And the consequence of this is verse 6. I will hedge her away with thorns 
I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. God sees what Israel did, sees the way that they abandoned God. God will not tolerate it, and so he hedges up her way. That's to to put basically a boundary around her so that as Israel desires to go after the fake gods that they want to receive the things they want from, God puts a boundary so that they can't even get to them any longer. Build up a wall around her. She'll pursue her lovers but won't access them any longer. I wonder if you've ever been thwarted in your sin and you find it frustrating. You've had some sinful desire you try to go after and you just can't accomplish it. And it's frustrating. Maybe you didn't even know it was a sinful desire, but you just can't get what you want. You go after it and it's just like everywhere around you there's a wall, there's this boundary. You just can't get to it. You wonder, what's up? Why can't I just do this thing? That maybe the Lord intervening in your life to stop you from doing the stupid things that you want to do. Now, God doesn't always do that. In Romans chapter 1, it describes how God gives over people to their lusts. And sometimes people live out their lusts in just full-fledged manner. But there will be times where, in a sense, God sets almost his judging love on people to hedge them in so that they can go thus far or no further to protect you from your own stupidity and me. It's frustrating. Next time you're frustrated, maybe take a moment and thank the Lord that he hedges you in behind and before. He may keep you and be protecting you from accessing the very things that would be displeasing to him. Then, verse 7, she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. That's what this is meant to lead to. It's meant to lead the people of Israel to a point where they're so hedged in, they can't even access the sin that they once desired, that they think, well, when we followed God, it was better for us than it is right now. At least get to that point. At least realize that you can make such a mess of your life that there is going to be a time where you look and you think, well, it's better to serve God than to go my own way. It's better for me then than now. I think of Romans chapter 6, verse 20, which says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sometimes we just need something to wake us up and make us realize the pigsty that we found ourselves in. And realize that it's so much better to follow the Lord than to follow our own ways. This language is very similar to the prodigal son who took the inheritance from his father, squandered it on profligate living, and finds himself with the pigs, wanting to eat what the pigs have. And you remember what wakens him up? He thinks, my father's servants eat better than I do right now. 
That would be better. I at least should get up and go to my father and say, I've sinned against you and against heaven. We need to wake up to what our sin gets us and say, we need to go back to God. We need to leave our sin and go back to Him because sin just leads ultimately to frustration. The second kind of illustration of sin here is that sin forgets God and loses joy. Sin forgets God and loses joy. Verse 8, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, which she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Satan packs a lot of lies into a very short period of time in the opening chapter of Gen- Gen- opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 3, you remember Eve is tempted by Satan to eat the fruit. There's a lot of lies that happen in a very short amount of time. But one of the lies that came out from that was basically God was withholding joy from Adam and Eve, withholding something good from them. And so they should eat and get what God hadn't given. Of course, that's not true. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. At the start here, you see verse 8 says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. You see, Israel forgot, didn't know, that God had lavished them with blessings and thought they would go after these things on their own. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, God speaking of Israel says, He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, and your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 14, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and you will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. And now Israel has reached a point where she didn't even know that God was the God who gave those things to her. And so she goes and sells herself to other gods to get those very things that God had promised During this time in Israel's history, they were mostly going after this God named Baal. If you read the Old Testament, you see his name from time to time. He was the God of fertility. The God who people thought gave the rains and blessed the fruit of the womb. And so there were these Baal shrines all over Israel. 
in place of the worship of God. In Jeremiah 19.5, it says that the people had built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree. The people had taken the worship of Baal so far that they ended up offering their own children to this God. And in return, they expected Baal to send the rains that would produce the grain that would break bake into bread. The worship of Baal could reach such a frenzy. You see this in the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal, that the priests of Baal would slash themselves and gush their blood in order to appeal to their God. What an awful, awful, fake God. God was the one who promised he would give those things to him, his people, the grain and the water, the growth. And yet the people of Israel went after them, and so God says that he's going to judge his people. In verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. The people of Israel had taken the very gifts that God had given, manipulated them into worship of Baal, and God was going to remove them so that the people no longer had mirth, that is, happiness and joy. They had forgotten me, it says in verse 13. Because they used God's gifts to worship Baal, God said he would take them back, those very same gifts. It says in verse 12, I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. So all that joy, all that goodness that God was going to pour out on his people, God removed. And they would not know the mirth any longer. The real crux of it, the real center point of it, is what it says in verse 8 and verse 13. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. And then verse 13, she forgot me, declares the Lord. Recall very uh, late in my time in high school, I started to try to read the Bible and try in a sense to seek God. And one of the things that I kept realizing was I just would forget about him for days and even weeks. My Bible would just lay on the ground and pick up dust and wouldn't open it. And I would just forget about God. It'd be like he didn't even exist to me for quite a long time. And when the Lord grabbed hold of my life, one of the first things that changed in me was like, I couldn't stop thinking about him. He was there all the time. He was in everything. He was there at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He was there when I went to bed and when I woke up. He was just there. Israel had forgotten her God. She didn't know me, says the Lord. It's personal. It's so personal. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And one of the points is that everything we have is from him. There should never be a moment where we don't remember there is a God who gives us good gifts, and he has the authority to remove them from us. And then all mirth and all joy and all happiness will be gone. Forgetting God is the crux of it for Israel. 
Our sin leads us away from God. We forget him and we lose our joy. This chapter, however, does not end on a downer. It actually ends pretty spectacularly. This chapter is broken down really into three sections. You see it there in verse 6. It says, Therefore I will hedge her her way up with thorns. And then again in verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time. And so there's these therefores. Because Israel has decided to leave me, therefore I will respond such and such a way, says the Lord. That's the way it goes. That's kind of the framework of the chapter. Israel commits adultery, they will, therefore they will be punished. Israel commits adultery, therefore God will take away the very things he had originally given them. But now we see this hinge in the chapter where mercy turns judgment into hope. Mercy turns judgment into hope. You get to verse 13, and there's another therefore, but this time it says, therefore, behold. It means draw all your attention to this. You've read two therefores already, and you expect that the next one isn't going to be much better than the past two, but you find it's on a completely different plane. It says, therefore. In other words, because of all the adultery that God's people had committed, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Where did that come from? It's not because Israel deserved it. Not because they begged for it. Where did mercy come from? Well, it comes from God. This is the God who extends judgment and mercy. And so again, out of the blue, here comes God's mercy. He sees his people committing this spiritual adultery. And what does he do? Well, he acts as a husband who's going to go get his bride back. He's not done with Israel. He's not done with his people, and he runs out, it says, in a sense, I will allure her. The word can be so strong as to mean seduce her. He's the competition of these other lovers, and God, in a sense, is going to go out and shows that he's the winner. He's going to go get her. Bring her into the wilderness, just like he did with Israel the first time, free from distractions, and speak tenderly to her, speak to her heart. And there, it says in verse 15, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I was reading a commentary and it said that verse 14 is really the, the focal point of the whole chapter. And I thought, I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure I know what he's talking about. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Why is that the center point? Why is that the main verse of the whole chapter? Well, to understand why that's true, and I've come become convinced that it is, I've become convinced that commentator had exactly right, that he is spectacularly right. And those few words inhabit the whole point of the message of Hosea. You have to understand what this valley of Achor is. If you turn back to Joshua chapter 7 for a moment, this is one of the horrific scenes in the Old Testament. Joshua 7 is that point after which Israel had entered the land, they had defeated Jericho, and God had said to the people of Israel that any kind of plunder from Jericho had to be completely devoted to the Lord. 
all of it given to him. They weren't to retain any of it for themselves. Well, there's this guy, Achan, who decided that he wasn't going to do that, and so he kept back some things from the plunder and hid it in his tent. And as a result, Israel was defeated in the next battle. And God reveals to the people that somebody had done something wrong, and they take lots to find out who it was, and it ends up being Achan and his family. And Achan and his family are taken out by Israel to this valley, and there they are stoned, and they are put to death. It's a horrible scene. Achan and his whole family killed by stones. Horrific. You read the Old Testament, and people get to this point, and they stumble over it. They think, this is horrible that this would happen. Joshua chapter 7, verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, and Achor means trouble. And so Israel was going to see this heap of stones that covered the bodies of Achan and his family, and they're to remember what had happened there and remember the judgment that happened. That's the point of the Valley of Achor. But you see what it says in verse 15 of Hosea chapter 2. I will make the Valley of Achor a door of what? Hope. This place of judgment is now a place of hope. And this shows us that God is a God who can come to a place of judgment and make it the very access point of hope. And you think, okay, if this is the kind of God who does this thing, where do we see this? Where do we see this happen? You've got to fast forward. And you come to that time where the man Jesus Christ is lifted up on a cross, pinned there with nails, And it is declared of him that he is a cursed man, cursed by God. So much so that Jesus cries out from the cross, as you all know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry of cursing, it is a cry of the damned. And there at the cross, Jesus Christ is accursed. He is hung on a tree, and cursed is the man who's hung on the tree. And yet all of us know who have come to Jesus Christ that the very access point of our hope is that very place of cursing of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the God who exercises judgment is also the God who can turn that judgment into a place of hope. And so we have here for the people of Israel this mindset where they hear the valley of Achor, and they think of that as a place of judgment. And God will declare it as a door of hope. In verse 16 of Hosea chapter 2, In that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And you see the redemption God is exercising. He's removing the idolatry from his people. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow, for her, sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You see the upending here of the exercise of judgment and the replacement of mercy. That's what God is doing. What a kind and good God he is. This is a description of what we understand as the new covenant. A time that God has inaugurated with Jesus Christ but has not yet completed. A time that will come to completion and consummation. And it will be so good when God fully inaugurates this era of righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness. And the way it's kind of described here to kind of pictorially represent how good it will be He describes it as a covenant with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground. Now, you might think, I don't care if God makes a promise with those things. I want God to deal with me. But here's why you care about that. Lions can eat you, and bears can eat you, and snakes can bite you and kill you. And the point here is that God is going to be restoring the whole world back to a condition like Eden, even better than Eden, so much so that a child can go play at the adder's hole. God is going to exercise his mercy in such profound ways that it will be as if the whole heavens and earth are remade and everything is put in its right spot. And it says in verse 21, in that day I'll answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and there shall answer the grain. It's almost as if the earth is crying out for water to the heavens, and the heavens cry out to God for permission to send rain, and God grants it, and their growth begins. But the sweetest part, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. And this marriage will be good. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love, and in mercy. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that he betrothed the people as a pure virgin to Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are experiencing, in a sense, the beginnings of that beautiful relationship where you belong to God through Jesus Christ, and it's a permanent relationship. It's one that will not end or betroth you to me forever. It's a relationship that is founded on God's righteousness, steadfast love, faithfulness. God will not abandon you. You are his. And so now we don't think of God necessarily as a jealous lover who has to compete with our spiritual adulteries, although there is that. God is a jealous God, but we think of him as a good shepherd who comes after us when we wander astray, and he will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He has us in his hands, and he will keep us forever. That's what it means to have God as your God. Oh, sin is so horrible. Try to take what God has given 
and use it for sinful purposes, and in the end you'll be thwarted anyway. Oh, come to Christ. Find him good and faithful, and be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the God who can take a place of judgment like the cross and turn it into the place of our very salvation. And I pray that we would come to you in faith and trust that you are the kind of God who extends mercy to sinners. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Hosea and how it gives us such a, a gritty picture of our own sin. And I pray that it would make us shudder at it and turn from it and turn to you and trust you and follow you. Thank you, Father, for this time that we can gather together this morning. May you bless us this week and help us to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.